Today's passage is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 28, page 988. In the Bibles around the room, we can find it. And if any of you don't have a Bible, you can take them with you. They are free for you. Today, the reading is going to be in Portuguese, as we heard, as a representation of the diversity of the people of God. And then I'll switch back to the English for the purpose of everyone's understanding, of course. <laughs> to God, all languages and races are unique and beautiful. We're all created in his image, even though sometimes we have a, a hard time getting along with each other. We are called to have a Christian conduct. That's what the final instructions and benediction given to us in this Bible is about, in today's passage is about. After I end the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and we'll all say, thanks be to God. Why do we say that? As a way of acknowledging God's word for the wonderful message that he's given us, a guiding light to our paths and our lives. So let's read. Conselhos finais, irmãos, honrem seus líderes na obra do Senhor. Eles trabalham arduamente entre vocês e lhes dão orientações. Tenham grande respeito e amor sincero por eles, por causa do trabalho que realizam, e vivam em paz uns com os outros. Irmãos, pedimos que advirtam os indisciplinados, encorajem os desanimados, ajudem os fracos, sejam pacientes com todos. Cuidem que ninguém retribua o mal com o mal, mas procurem sempre fazer o bem uns aos outros e a todos. Estejam sempre alegres, nunca deixem de orar. Sejam gratos em todas as circunstâncias, pois essa é a vontade de Deus para vocês em Cristo Jesus. Não apaguem o espírito, não desprezem as profecias, mas ponham à prova tudo o que é dito e fiquem com o que é bom. Mantenham-se afastados de toda a forma de mal. E agora que o Deus da paz os torne santos em todos os aspectos e que o espírito, a alma e o corpo de vocês sejam mantidos irrepreensíveis até à volta do nosso Senhor Jesus Cristo. Aquele que os chama fará isso acontecer, pois ele é fiel. Irmãos, orem por nós. Cumprimentem todos os irmãos com um beijo santo. Encarrego-os, em nome do Senhor, de lerem esta carta a todos os irmãos. Que a graça de nosso Senhor Jesus Cristo esteja convosco. Let us... This is the word of Lord. Thanks be to God, right. Let us pray. We're thankful for the gentle and powerful message you gifted us with, Lord. May you, the God of peace, yourself sanctify us completely and may our whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ yes we trust that you'll do it god we pray for pastor mark while he expands this passage and wonderful message to us by the power of the holy spirit may the grace of our lord jesus christ be with us and with all the pastors all over the world. Amen.
Well, we, we got a big passage this morning, and we need to get to work, all right? So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're landing the plane of this letter. Let me just give a brief context to how the Bible gets shaped, because it matters as letters close, and they begin. And so we're in this series, Viral Hope, and, and what it is, is it comes from a group of Christians in a city called Thessalonica, and you remember when there's the early Christians, they meet Jesus, they get saved, they're forgiven, they're included into the church family. There was not a Bible to immediately help them in all of their processing of what it looks like now to follow Jesus. And so then what did they do? They reached out to the apostles, the apostles who met Jesus, walked with Jesus, was taught by Jesus. They have the authority of Jesus' words because they were with him. And in fact, every book of the New Testament we have confidence in because it's connected to an apostle who was with Jesus. That's why we trust it. That's why it's been preserved. It hasn't been reinterpreted and rewritten and, 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 um, and with agendas from all kinds of people. It's the original word from the apostles in Paul, who wrote most of the books of the New Testament, 13 of them. He, was, he, was, uh, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was commissioned by Jesus. He was taught by Jesus in the wilderness for a few years until he started his ministry. That's where his apostolic authority comes from. So then what does the early Christians do who are trying to make sense of, hey, I met Jesus, but what do we do now? You know, you know they wrote a letter. They wrote a letter to Paul. And they're like, Paul, we got some questions. And that's, that's probably like some of you. you. You've come to church. You didn't really know much about Jesus or you didn't really know much about the story of God in the world. And so you're like, I got some questions. I'm searching some things out. I'm trying to figure it out. What about this? What about that? What, what does Christian, being a Christian mean for this? And so the, the church of Thessalonica had the same questions, just like you do, which is great. So they wrote a letter to Paul, and Paul writes a letter back. That's how we get 1 Thessalonians. He's answering questions. Isn't that great? Now we have it preserved so that as you ask questions, you're like, you don't have to go to Paul. He's dead. You can't find him. Uh, but you can go to the letter. So we're finishing out this first letter where they, a bunch of people trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus ask Paul some questions. Then what happens? He writes 1 Thessalonians. And they're like, that's great. You answered some stuff. Awesome. But we have some more questions. And so then what does he do? He writes 2 Thessalonians. That, that's how the Bible developed. It's also why we have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. You know there's a 3 Corinthians? It's out there. Uh, it didn't make the cut, but it's out there. Paul had a bad night. Who knows what he wrote in that thing, right? But it's there. Why? The Christians were asking questions about how does Jesus make a difference in all of these things? Paul writes a letter. Now we're closing out this first letter. And Paul, in these final instructions on this very first letter of Viral Hope, uh, gives us some things for us to consider. And it's about who we are as a community, how we are as a church. And I don't know if you know, because sometimes once you're in a thing long enough, you forget what it was like to kind of enter into that thing. You forget what it was like to be outside of it. And the church is a little bit like that. I don't know if you recognize, because maybe you've been here for a very long time, but it's weird, right? You walk into a church, it's weird. You're weird, right? So people walk in, it's like, 
they're raising hands. You're like, bro, I can't see the, I can't see the screen. Put your hands down, you know? Like, it's weird. We, we raise hands. We confess sin. Where does that happen in the real world? Nowhere, right? That's just not a thing, right? We come into church, and there's words on the screen. We haven't even had two drinks, and we're doing karaoke, right? Right? And some of you are doing really bad karaoke, poor neighbors who are sitting by you, right? We're, we're, there's words on a screen. That only happens in a bar, right? That doesn't happen anywhere else. You're not collecting somewhere at, like in work in, a, in a, like, a, like a, an employee meeting and they're putting words on the screen and you're singing. That doesn't happen. The church is weird. What we're doing is we open a Bible. There's a pulpit. This whole thing is strange. We give you little Barbie cups of juice or wine. You're like, oh, I, you trust me with this much wine? Thank you. You know, like that's why we do communion every week because you're still thirsty and still hungry. That's so small, right? It's, why is it here? There's candles. The whole thing is strange. And if you're new to church, you're like, this is weird in here. If you've been here a while, maybe you don't recognize how weird it is. Now, it's weird on purpose. I don't think we should change anything. I don't think we should change communion. Baptism is strange. You're like, you're dunking people in water. What's going on? The church is a weird place. Now, it's a weird place on purpose. Sometimes we forget how strange it is here, and sometimes we forget the perspective of those who are on the outside, what it's like to walk into a church. Now, now all that being said, especially if you're in here and you're like, this is a little weird, I would say it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. And unfortunately, a, a lot of Christians over the last several years have worked really hard to take the weirdness out of where things should be weird. Now, we shouldn't be weird where it's in the way. If it's, you know, it's like you got to dress a certain way, act a certain way. You got to use big words, you know, our Father in heaven, dear Lord. You know, like, yeah, that's weird. It pushes people away. We, we don't want that. But there's a weirdness about this that is good, and it's intended. And when we try to stop being weird, we actually dilute the thing that is the most hopeful for people. And that's where Paul's coming in going, Hey, you got a weird church, but it's meant to be. And here's where it starts. And for us to understand why the church functions this way and why we have trays and communions and why do we sing, it's, it's because the church was Jesus' idea. And we know this out of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew 16, Jesus gives us his big idea for the church. And he's talking to his first disciples, those who become the apostles and establish the church and plant churches all over the first century world. It's these disciples that Jesus begins to talk about the church. The church doesn't happen later in the Bible. It happens with Jesus. And in Matthew 16, Jesus says, and I will tell you, you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whose idea is the church? Jesus. It wasn't man-made. It wasn't man-created. It wasn't a bunch of guys getting to a boardroom going, how can we control the power of the world? Like that, that's not how the church was established. It was an idea that came from God himself. It was an idea that when Jesus would come, he would live, he would ascend into heaven, he left the church behind. And the church would be intentionally 
waiting for the return of Christ with a great mission in the world. It was his idea. And if it's Jesus' idea, the weirdness of the church is his idea. Not the weirdness we bring to it, but the weirdness that Jesus has created in the structure of the church. Let me give you an example. The church has always been strange to the people around it. The church has always been a, a weird entity to the surrounding culture. I want to take you to a letter. This is a, a letter written in 125. So just not, not very many generations, maybe two, after the ascension of Jesus, and, and this person who wrote this letter lived in the lifetime of the apostles. Isn't that great? And he writes this letter, and it's a letter to Diognitus, and this is what he says. And I just want you to, to listen, because it's weird. The church has always been weird. For Christians, he says, are distinguished from other men, not by country, not by language, or not by customs. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a particular form of speech. Isn't that great? They don't talk any different. That's neat. Nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive people. Nor do they, like some proclaim themselves, the advocates of merely human doctrines, but they inhabit Greek as well as barbarian cities. Isn't that amazing? They, they didn't just call one place home. They went everywhere. According to the lot of each of them has determined and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary conduct. They contextualized. They, be, they became part of the context of the cities they lived in. They displayed to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They were weird. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their own native country. Every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry as all others do. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not, as a, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, but at the same time surpass the laws of the Lamb by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are insulted and repay an insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are in the world. Not a great letter. That's an amazing letter. God willing, that'll be a letter that can be said of me or of you at your funeral. I'd love to, leave, I'd love to read a letter like that about you. The reality is, here's what the guy's saying, and I don't know if this particular guy writing this letter was a Christian or not. We, don't, we actually don't know that. He's writing to somebody about what's going on in the world in that particular time and just after the church was birthed and just after Jesus ascended. And he's like, look, these Christians, they're strange, weird. They're strange folks. They do weird things. They're not doing what those around are typically doing. They're, they're infiltrating, they're going, they're, 
they're acting like foreigners when they when they should be um, when they should be familiar and and they're no home is their home, yet every home is their home. They're weird. And the surrounding culture is looking at those Christians going, something is strange. And those that kind of weirdness, not wearing a certain thing, speaking a certain way, not those things, but this kind of weirdness is a weirdness that Jesus intrinsically created in the church. And it's a weirdness that we're being called to. It's a weirdness we wouldn't change. I wouldn't change people raising their hands, singing their affections for Jesus, communion, because these are all the things that we've been invited to. Now, when Jesus built the church, he could have built it on anything, right? He could have. It was up to him. It's his church. He could have built it on something like affinity, all the people liking the same thing, acting the same way, being the same kind of people. We, we often like churches that look like us and act like us and think like us and use money like us and have values like us. That's affinity. And, and we often want churches that are affinity-driven, but Jesus didn't plant the church or start the church on affinity, right? He didn't. He built it on something else. Uh, he could have built it on just mission alone, purpose, meaning here's a, a great many tasks that we've been called to do by Jesus as the church that's what we gather for. We gather here just to kind of get pumped up and, and like a pep rally and then go out and win the game. He could have made it about the mission or purpose. Now, churches have purpose and mission. We've talked about it from Sepulveda, hometown Christmas, in the city for the city, making disciples, being a diverse community. We have a great mission, but he didn't build the church on mission. He could have built the church on traditions. Do this or do that, and as long as you have those traditions, then you are a church. Now, churches have traditions, but he didn't build it. Or he could have built it on creating meaning or fulfillment, being significant, or a very common one, especially for people who return back to the church. They return to the church when they become parents and they want their kids to gain some sense of morality. Or they attend a church because they're like, I, it makes me a better person. Now, these may or may not happen. These may or may not be included in the church, but they are not what Jesus built the church on. Jesus built the church on himself. And I tell you, you are Peter, and this is where it gets confusing because then we end up with the Pope because is Peter the rock? I don't think so. When you look at the original language, Jesus is. You're Peter, but on this rock, I will build my church. So there wasn't mission. It wasn't affinity. It wasn't a good time. It wasn't fun. It, it wasn't those things. Now, churches and communities have all those things. What it was was Jesus himself. Jesus built the church, established the church on himself, which is what we call the gospel. The good news is the perfect person of Jesus for your imperfect person. And Jesus' perfect work for your lack of perfect work. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus. That's the summary. We'll say that 150,000 times from this pulpit. The gospel, the good news, is Jesus' perfect work and perfect being for you. That's the gospel. And it's on that rock of reality 
that this church is built on. This church is built on the gospel of Jesus, which makes us weird. It makes us strange. And when we try to get away from the weirdness of the gospel, we literally ignore and avoid the gospel. Because we can get into mission and be very busy, but we're not about the thing that Jesus established church. We can, we can be about affinity and all like the same things and be the same kind of people and go, man, I just love these people because they're like me. But that is blasphemous to Jesus. We can be about traditions, but then all we'll do is work real hard to maintain our traditions and we'll lose Jesus. The church is built on Christ. Which means if the church is built on Christ, we're going to look like strange people. We're going to look weird. And so for you, especially if, if you're coming in, I want to give you some reasons why we're weird. And if you've been here for a while, I want to give you some reasons to remember that we're being called to a kind of strange life, a kind of strange way of existing in the world around us. And that is the point of 1 Thessalonians 5 at the very end. Verse 12, here's how he starts. He says, we ask you, brothers, now, this is where you circle, what's brothers? Brothers and sisters, literally saying the church. Yo, church, we're asking you, in light of everything we've answered now, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. All right, the very first thing that Paul reminds us that we're a weird community is that being built on Jesus changes our relationship with authority, right? In the world, you are a, a master of your own ship. You are sailing in your own sea. Now, you might go to a school and there's some authority they have over you. You might, a university, there's some authority. You have a boss, you have a middle management. You hate that guy, but you have him, right? And, and he has some authority over you, but his authority over you is is connected to the things that, like a paycheck, you want that paycheck so you surrender that authority. But the way that the church is built is that God has given spiritual authority over us. Now, remember, if Jesus, if the church is Jesus' idea, the way the church functions is Jesus' idea, and Paul comes out of the gate and goes, hey, you got some leaders among you. You got some people who are over you. You got some people who have spiritual authority. And he's talking to the pastors and to the elders. Now, he, he might also mean other leaders inside the church. And I think that we should respect them all. We should follow them. We should encourage them, all the things, and esteem them that are in this passage. But I, I want to point you to this reality, that Jesus's idea for you as a Christian was to put over you some pastors who care for your soul. And that wasn't our idea. That's Jesus' idea. That's what Paul's saying. And so then he invites them into this weird relationship between authority and us. Now, when I say that we have been invited, it's because it's not just that the pastors and elders are this exclusive little group up here at the top. And we're like, man, let's just tell everybody what to do. And we'll just do our own thing. That's not how it works. You are being called to esteem your pastors, and I am being called to esteem my pastors. There is nobody in the church that is without spiritual authority. Lead pastor, 
elder, lay elder, staff elder. There is nobody in the church that is not under spiritual authority. And so these guys that you see, they're my pastors, which means Paul's calling me to esteem them just as highly as you're being called to esteem them. And my title or role doesn't change the reality that God has put these faithful men in my life as a spiritual authority. It's radical. That's crazy town. There's nowhere else in, in our world where that happens intrinsically because something is true, namely Jesus. Now, it might happen because you want a paycheck. It might happen because you want a good work environment. It might happen because you want a good marriage, so you'll submit in, in that kind of way. But there's nowhere where this is a natural response to just the reality of the existence of Jesus. Are you with me right there? Because that's different. Now, let's because this is so weird, especially if you're coming from outside the church, and if we live in such an individualistic society, it's weird to come into a community and then submit yourself to people who have spiritual authority over you. You're like, who are you, preacher man? Why should you have any kind of authority? And it's not because there's something intrinsic in me. It's because God raises up pastors. It's not our idea. It's Jesus' idea. And it's not just for you. It's for me too. And let me talk a little bit about the role of a pastor. There's many things that can be said. I'd say, I'll say two. First, the, 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 authority, um, the authority is not the very first thing that a pastor is doing in the church. A pastor is not called, first and foremost, to rule over people. The first calling of a pastor is to be the first disciple of a church. Meaning this, that as God raises up pastors, those pastors are willingly surrendering rights and claims in their lives and free time and schedule and work and goals and dreams and some family in order to be a, an example of the first disciple in the church. I mean, we're following Jesus, and I have given up certain rights and privileges in order to follow Christ, to demonstrate what following Christ looks like to you. This is what Paul means, follow me as I follow Jesus. He doesn't mean he is Jesus. He means he has surrendered rights and claims to pursue Jesus like crazy so that you can get a vision of what it looks like to pursue Jesus and love the church like crazy. And then you can follow that example too. That's the point of a pastor. Which means this, the pastors of Livingstone's, we don't have the right or the privilege not to be in the word or not to be walking with Jesus or not to be in prayer. I, I don't have that privilege because I, I got to get up and these guys need to get up and we need to feed the church and we need to be in the word and, and we don't want to generate this stuff. We want it to flow out of a natural relationship of, of, of us walking with Jesus. So as a pastor, because I'm not only going to stand before you here, but I stand before Jesus at the end of this because it's harder for us, not easier. And we'll be judged before Christ much more harshly than anybody else because we're representing for Jesus. So we don't have the right and privilege not to walk with Christ. We don't have the right and privilege to be immature. We don't have the right and privilege to be self, selfish or with the right to privilege to compartmentalize 
our faith into different compartments. We, we have surrendered those claims so that we can follow Christ like crazy and so that you could see and follow too. Now, you don't have the right, you don't have the privilege either to not be in the Word every day. It just feels like it. It's killing you. Your soul suffering. But, but we've given up that privilege. The second thing is God raises up pastors for the spiritual authority. Now, you might come back and you might say, oh, okay, well, then just deal with the spiritual things in my life, right? Like, for my mind and mental state, I'll go to a psychologist for, for grades or whatever. I'll go to my school counselor or whatever. And for my spiritual things, I'll come to my pastor. But the, the Bible actually never uses this term spiritual authority. It says one who, one who cares for your soul, who is over your soul. And you know where your soul goes? Everywhere. Do you know where the life of a pastor intersects with your life? Everywhere. God has given pastors to ask the questions, to investigate the areas, every area of your life that is connected with your soul, and your soul goes everywhere. Now, that doesn't mean don't have counselors and many different counselors or psychologists. You need some of those. But to compartmentalize and go, well, this thing is for this person, and this thing is for my pastors. The problem is, is God has given you pastors for your soul, and your soul goes everywhere. And so some people would like to keep it separate, but it's not spiritual, it's soul. What does that mean? It means we want to walk with you in every part of your life. Every part. You might be like, mm, don't talk to me about my money. We will. Don't talk to me about how I spend my weekends. Is your soul there? Then Jesus asked me to be. It's not because I want the awkward conversation. I don't like it. I don't be like, hey, uh, we got to talk. You know, I don't want to have that conversation, right? That's weird. I don't want to have it, but that's my calling. And that's these elders' callings, to enter into everywhere that interacts with your soul, and that's in every single part of your life. And so God's design and care has been to give you pastors that oversee, that help you by demonstrating a first disciple, but then by caring for your soul in every part of your life. Now, Paul says, in light of those things, Respect those who God has put over you. Okay, so let me just throw out, there, this is a trigger warning. I don't want you to walk out of here and go, oh my gosh, Pastor Mark, bunch of microaggression. Um, <laughs> you, you, might get, you, you might get a little fidgety here, right? Trigger warning. Because of Jesus, we are in a different relationship with authority in the church. Because of Jesus, we've been called into something really weird and strange. And instead of going, okay, well, I'll, I'll live under authority so far as it's good to me, God calls us in through Christ and goes, no, because Jesus has done something in you, you're going to live in authority because it's now it's a kind of worship. And the whole dynamic has changed. And so what does he say? Things that we don't like. Respect those who God has put over, it, over your soul. What? Now, the, this word is fascinating because the word respect here is actually the word to know. And I like that it's been translated respect because that's the intention of the word. Because there's multiple reasons to know your pastor. You can know your pastor because you want to be critical. 
You can know your pastor because you want to tell them all the ways that they're not doing a good job. You want to know your pastor because you want them to fix a certain thing. So you can respect or you can know your pastor, but that knowledge is bent towards what? And Paul calls us to bend it towards respect. To know them in order to respect them, to care for them. A, a, kind, of, a kind of elevating what you know of them. To believe the best. Now here's, here's fascinating. The church is called to know their pastors. First Peter chapter 5, pastors are called to know their church. It's mutual. First Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Not somebody else's, not, not somewhere else, not other people. Shepherd the church that is among you, that, that God has raised you up in, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, right? And what's the point? He's like, shepherd this flock, which means know these sheep, know these people, give your life to these people, and not a future version of these people, but to these people right now. Know them. And isn't it amazing that pastors are called to know the sheep, and the sheep, the church, is called to know their pastor. Respect. Not know them and know their failures, but to know them and who they really are, their hopes, dreams, desires, how God has made them, to know them. Secondly, it says labor among you. So respect those who labor among you. And this word is, is this is hammer, um, hammer swinging language. This is like hard labor. And, and it is hard labor. Some of us, there's, there's two staff pastors, right? And we're, this is our job and our ministry, but it goes beyond ours. It's, it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week thing. You, you just you love the church, and sometimes it, it happens at odd times and odd hours. But our lay elders, they're working jobs, nine to fives, and then they're coming to meetings, and then we're talking about how to care for the church, and and they're carrying a great burden because they have your life that you have plus the responsibility of caring for the church plus the responsibility of having to stand before Jesus at the end of their life for the work that they're doing for you. Man, that's big. That's hard labor. That's hammer-swinging labor. And you're heavy. Watch what you eat. Your soul is heavy. You know why pastors need sabbaticals is because it's a job that just encroaches on every part of your own soul. Loving people well, and, and some people are really heavy. And sometimes the church has heavy seasons and lighter seasons. And, and I'll tell you, these guys and myself, we love it. So this isn't because we, we, we're, we're struggling. We love our calling, but it's heavy. So respect those, know those who are Working hard with manual labor on your behalf. And then here, here, all right, big trigger, who are over you. What did he say? They're over you. That's God's idea. Pastors resemble the family. The family is the church in seed form. Think about that. And we all know that, that one of the leading causes of, of all kinds of stuff happening in our culture is fatherless homes. And if you can see that fatherless homes, and some of you are deeply wounded and broken because of the homes that you were raised in, which are deeply broken and hurting. And churches are not meant to be fatherless either. 
and there's a great father. The good thing is God is the father of your family and God is the father of the church. But the under father of the family is meant to lead the family like God does. And the under fathers or the under shepherds of the church is meant to lead the church like Jesus would. And so he's given you, father, like fathers of a family, he's given pastors to lead the church. Now here's the next one, admonish you. This is not a word we use very often, but admonish is not positive. And I love that because Paul's like, respect those, esteem those who are over you, working hard for you, leading you, and they even sometimes get up in your grill and admonish you. Even respect them then. That's how backwards and weird this community is under Jesus. It means that pastors get up in your grill sometimes and they ask you some hard questions and they admonish you. The word admonish means to remember the thing that you committed to. So you've come, you've claimed Christ as your own. You're a Christian, you're walking with Jesus. Pastors come along, we don't control you. We're not heavy handed. We're not telling you how or what decisions you should make. We bring the Bible to bear. We bring Jesus to bear and we go, here's what it appears to us. We admonish you by saying, don't forget the faith that you entrusted. Don't forget the commitment to Christ that you made. I was at your baptism. I heard you. I saw your tears. Go back to that. Don't forget the commitment you made to Christ. But your life right now looks far from that. And here's what happens is as pastors, they begin to confront the areas of your soul. And you're like, ah, 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 I'm out of here. I'll go to the church over there because they don't admonish. You need admonishing. That was God's idea. And I need admonishing too. You don't think in this last couple weeks with cancer scare and potential whatever this is tomorrow, it's, we're still not out of the woods. I haven't wavered. I haven't struggled. I haven't wrestled with the Lord. I have all those things. I come out confident at the end of it, but isn't that the process? And somebody has to come along. And sometimes it was my wife going, man up. Sometimes... And, and sometimes it was these pastors when they came and prayed over us at our house and anointed my wife with oil. Or Pastor Greg in the office. They admonish. And I can be offended, but then I need to remember I forget. We just sang a song that says, I'm prone to wonder. Isn't it amazing? We come and we're like, I'm prone to wonder. You know that whole thing I can't sing? <laughs> I, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Mark's the best singer, Lord, I hear it. You know, prone to wonder. Isn't it amazing? We, we sing these amazing words and then we get offended when somebody calls out our wondering. You're like, I only want to sing about it. I want to talk about it. Admonish. We all need to admonish. And then the last word, esteem them very highly. Notice it says esteem them, which is to value. Value them very highly. Notice this. It, it, it's not just highly, it's very highly. I love that word. It, we're being called to a dramatic difference in the way we interact with authority inside the church because this thing has been built on Jesus and Jesus has done something in me. So it allows me not to just tolerate authority, but it allows me to ha very highly esteem it. Come on. No, amen there. I got you. I hear you. <laughs> right? There's your heart right there. I admonish you. Here's what I love. Let me say about the steaming. 
Here's what I'd say. I'd say this. Notice why it says to esteem. It says, esteem very highly in love. Why? Because some esteem their pastors in order to get for themselves. You, there, there's esteeming. It's not the esteeming. It's the why you are valuing. Some people in the church value pastors because those pastors hold the title that those people want. Some people esteem their pastors because they want their pastors to do something in the church that they want. Some people esteem their pastors in order to get something for themselves, like their own esteem. I just want to be in the inner circle. I can call these guys my buddies so that it looks really good to everybody else that I'm on the inside. Or I'm going to esteem my pastors so that I can have the insider information and bolster my own desire for knowledge and information about the church so I feel like I'm more of an insider than I am. There's all kinds of reasons to esteem your pastors. This one is not to esteem for what you get, to esteem because of what God has done in them. To esteem them because you love them. Esteem them because you know them. They labor among you. They care for you. They're going to stand before Jesus. Esteem them. Now, let me put up, uh, put up this picture. The things that Paul has called, has, in this chapter, he has called you to do for these men. Isn't that amazing? It just turns out that uh, if you have hair, you become senior pastor. So there's a, there's a famous quote that says, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Uh, in the land of the bald, the one-haired guy is king. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Hey, that's an example of how not to esteem. All right? Here's the thing. Let me make, let me, let's put it on the ground. What Paul calls to in chapter 5 of Thessalonians, he calls for these faces. Real people who have been called by God to stand on an account of your soul. Isn't that amazing? Now, why? Why? Let me turn you to 1 Thessalonians 1 4, and I'm going to do this a few other times in the sermon. Paul is finishing with some last instructions, but it's built on a foundation that he began in chapter 1. And let me take you to that foundation. For we know, brothers, loved by God. Do you know how Jesus makes us have a different relationship with authority? It's because if you knew how loved you were by God, elevated by God, you can willingly surrender to the people that God has put over your life and over your soul. If you know how loved you are, you will wrestle less with the authority. But when we think that by giving away our authority or allowing others to have spiritual authority in our life somehow diminishes me, we're not understanding how God's love looks and works. So then God changes our relationship with authority. The, the next two, that's the big one. The next two, a little bit quicker. Verse 14 and 16. Look what happens. Not only do we have a weird authority, but then we also have a very weird way that relationship happens in here. And verse 14, Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Not only has Jesus changed the way we relate in authority, he changes the way we relate to one another. 
Do you see how crazy we are called to be in relationship with one another? First, he starts out with this be at peace. The, this language is not create peace where there's not peace, me, meaning he wasn't, he wasn't looking at a church that was struggling in their relationships of peace. The church had a pretty strong culture of peace because the words and the language he uses here is continue your peace with one another, meaning there's going to be things that pop up that are going to hurt the peace among the church. So fight for it. Work hard to maintain and to continue the peace that you have in Christ. That's a great word. That's a, that's a crazy thing that we should be a, a community at peace. The second thing, notice this. What's the word again? Admonish. Not nuts. Pastors admonish, but then members admonish. Saints admonish. Everybody's admonishing. It's like Oprah in here. You admonish, and you admonish, and you admonish. You know, you're like, I got a gift of admonishing, you know. Welcome. It's your spiritual gift. Use it. You didn't even have to take a test. Admonish. So who? not only are the pastors being called to admonish, meaning you don't, you don't get to come to the church, sit down, and go, the pastors will handle it. That issue in that person's life, let the pastors get it. They're throwing down that big money, you know? Let let the, let, the, let the pastors get it. That's, that's, what, they're, that's what they're here for. No. The, the, the first place where admonishing begins to happen is amongst the community, amongst one another. This is why you're in CGs together. This is why you're invited into community. So you keep the peace, but then you also admonish the idol, which means you, alongside the pastors, are being called to, to, to plead with those who have forgotten what they have committed to in faith. That's crazy. We're all admonishing. And, and then it says, but to who directly? To the idol. That's a big word. I could spend a whole sermon on that idol. Here's my three points. The idol in the church are those who are distracted, meaning that they've gotten themselves involved in too much or they're involved in too little. And what I mean by little, I just mean in terms of importance, little importance. They're involved in all kinds of distractions that don't allow them to be contributing members of the church. They're distracted. They're idle. They're, they're not putting in play the love and serving and peace amongst the community. They're not investing in the community. They're showing up to be invested in, but they're not invested. Why? Because they got too much going on. They, they've jacked up their schedule and calendar. They've, they, they're doing everything that keeps them away from the church. Instead of putting them into the church, they've made bad decisions which is the second one. They've decidedly, not by distraction, but they've decidedly chosen to not invest in the community of, of the church, but instead to be takers. And then thirdly, they are deceived. My gifts are too big and too great to work in kids' ministry. You're being lied to. I'm too overqualified. I... I'm not gifted in that way. Well, you got a Holy Spirit, so I think you'll be okay. What we end up is we end up being deceived about ourselves, and, and we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and so what? We become idle around the church. We talk a big talk, but we're not in the game. And you know what? We're to admonish, admonish the idol, call them into the community, going, you believe in Jesus and I believe in Jesus. That changes the way that we relate here to one another. We're not, we're not busybodies doing nothing. We're not just idle. 
Now, there's those who are idle because they're distracted or they've made a decision or they're deceived. But then there's those who are idols because they're idle in the church because they're hurting and they're broken. What does Paul say? Encourage the faint-hearted. See, one of the worst, one of the worst ways to build a community is to have a community that admonishes not only those who are idle, but admonishes the hurting. People who are coming in and they're in a broken state, they're wounded. In fact, the language here is small souled. Their soul is shriveled or their soul is small. It can't contain the, the fullness of everything God has called them to. For whatever reason or another, they're hurting. And one of the worst things that we could do as a pastor and one of the worst things that we can do as a church community is to encourage the idle and admonish the hurting. No, no, you admonish the idle and you help the faint-hearted. So we need to encourage some and admonish some and we need to know the difference. And I want you to think of like a battle. that There's a front lines and then there's a, there's a medical tent in the very back. The medical tent isn't in the front, it's in the back. Because sometimes you're on the front lines and then you get injured and you have to go in the tent and you have to recover. And at that point, some other people move into the front lines to care and to, to, to maintain and to steward the church. And then there comes a point where maybe you have to take a break because you're tired, you're worn out, schedule changes, something dramatic happens in life, health crisis, something like that. And you know what? We go, you know, get back in the recovery tent back here, heal up, get the wounds bound you know, allow the Holy Spirit to heal you. There's other people willing to go to the front line. But the idol always stay back because they're never recovered. And there's some people that need to recover, but because they're finding their value and performance, they always stay at the front line. And so there are some people that need to be encouraged, but you, we need to admonish them first. Get back. Take a break. Your value is not in what you do here. And then Paul sums it up with this summary, be good to everyone. Isn't that just the summary? When you come to church, you're like, how can I be good to you? You guys have been so good to us. The food that has been coming this week, I haven't had to make dinner all week. It's amazing. Food just shows up at our door. We don't even order it. It's amazing, you guys. And it's been good. It's been really good. So if you're bringing food this week, keep it up. <laughs> it's, it's been it's been amazing. Don't, don't disappoint us now. <laughs> it's been amazing. You're, you're caring for us. You're being good to us. And that's what it looks like to be in the community. Where does it fit? Let me take you back to 1 Thessalonians 4. How does the gospel do this? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Do you see that if we were able to see that it's God who chooses and not us who chooses, all of a sudden we have capacity and ability to love that we would not otherwise have. If we could look at someone and go, I wouldn't choose you, like that strange uncle in your family that's going to come over for Thanksgiving, you're like, I wouldn't choose him. In fact, I would choose the opposite of him, you know? Like sometimes that's the church. You're like, I wouldn't choose her or him. They're strange. But you know who did? Jesus. So who are we? Who are we to go, I won't choose you? Who are we to go, I won't be kind to you. I won't be good to you. I won't love you. I won't be in peace with you. That's when you understand that not only you are the, you're the crazy one, right? That Jesus has chosen you and everybody's like, I can't believe that. But then you begin that Jesus chooses a church, not you. All of a sudden it begins to develop something different. Thirdly, verse 16, 18, the gospel shapes our culture as a church. We have a weird culture. Verse 16, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. There, there's kind of three things in here. There's a great book I read last year by William Vanderblom, who owns Vanderblom Search Group, who finds pastoral positions for churches. They're headhunters. And in 2016, the Vanderblom Search Group was awarded America's best work, uh, best working environment. Best place to work for in 2016, a Christian who supplies pastors and ministry roles in churches all across the country. Amazing. And as they went backwards to kind of re-engineer why they won that award, he ended up writing a book. And this book is called Culture Wins, one of the best books I read in 2018. And, and here's what Culture Win is about. He goes, you could focus on gifting, you can focus on education, you can focus on training, equipping, and every work uh, environment needs those things, but none of those things will provide you the kind of place you want to continue to work for other than culture and how the place functions. Because if a person fits in the culture, you can train them. But if they don't fit in the culture, it doesn't matter how educated they are. They turn around, they turn PhDs down in their company when that person with a PhD doesn't actually fit the culture of the, of the work or of the of the employment or the, of the job. Culture wins. And here's the thing. Culture wins. It doesn't matter how educated you are, where you've been, what, what kind of pedigree you have, how long you've been in the church. The culture that is most concerned here is a culture of joy and a culture of supernatural and a culture of worship. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances. What's going on? There is not anything in your life right now that is impossible for you to rejoice in. There's not anything happening in your life right now that makes it impossible to pray without ceasing. There's nothing happening in your life right now that is stopping you or impeding you from being able to give thanks in that particular circumstance. Because it's not just a doing, it's a culture of the heart. And Christians are weird, and I read in that letter that they become alive, invigorated with life when they're pressed down and when they're persecuted. Why? Because there's a, an ability to rejoice in who Christ is regardless of the thing that we're facing. And when people walk in, if they walk into a place that goes, I love Jesus, but what they hear is criticism, gossip, um, dep like just de a depressed way to talk about Christ or the church. Who's going to meet Jesus then? We're in the way. That's not a culture of joy. It doesn't matter how educated you are and how much theology you know. If that theology doesn't birth joy, that theology is worthless in you. Culture matters. And so we're being invited into a culture of joy. We're being invited into a culture of supernatural. Don't quench the spirit. Here's a quick one. And I know I got, I got, there's so much to talk about. The day of Pentecost, a flame came down. And that was an image, a picture, a representation of the work of the Holy Spirit. And it felt, and it came on their head. And later on, Paul goes, don't quench. Quench is a fire term, which means it was the Holy Spirit that brought you in. Don't quench him now. None of us have come to Christ in our own power. None of us has come to Christ because we're good enough. None of us have come to Christ because we have the fire. We've come to Christ because the Holy Spirit has worked supernaturally to bring your heart alive so that you can worship Jesus. And if it's the Holy Spirit that brought you in, why would we quench the Spirit once we're in? We would not and should not. 
And Paul's like, your culture needs to be a culture that's supernaturally led by God, who's the Holy Spirit living in you, going, Lord, here I am today. Here I am this moment. What do you want from me? Where do I go? What do I do? How do I, how do I work today? How, how do I talk today? How do I think about my circumstances today? God, lead me supernaturally because I don't want this just to be of this man. Don't quench the spirit because you became, you came in supernaturally. Let me show you 1 Corinthians 4, 1, 4. Brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, logic, logos, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. If you're led in supernaturally, then we continue in this culture of supernatural culture. And last of this culture is worship, abstain from every kind of evil. Worship is not the, the songs where you're singing. Worship is the abstaining from the things that devalue the glory of God. Last one, and I'll get down. Verse 19 through 25. Or uh, 23 through 25. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body, there it is, spirit, soul, and body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The last one is that when Jesus builds a church and that church is weird, part of the reason that church is weird is because it changes our relationship with performance. In every other aspect of our lives, our value is determined by what we do, say, think, what we post online. Our value is determined by what we do. But in the church, in the church, our value is not based upon our performance. So then you might go, okay, well, Pastor Mark, if it's not based, then why do any of this? Why does any of this matter? What does it matter if I perform at esteeming my elders? What if it, what does it matter if I perform at, at, at this incredible relationship in the church? What does it matter if then if I perform of rejoicing or without ceasing praying or giving thanks? What does it matter then if ultimately my performance isn't the thing? And, and here's what I would say to that. I would say, it matters because it's the posture of those things that God completes the work in us. That it's not about our performance in the church. It is about our posture, meaning we can stiff arm God, quench the Holy Spirit, rebel. But even in all of those things, that's just us being willing to walk with God in the grace of God. But even if you stiff arm the Lord, if Jesus has you, he will bring you into completion. This word complete is radical because it means undamaged. It means that at the end of your life, regardless of where you are right now, if you're in Christ, at the end of your life, Jesus is going to deliver you by prime to the very throne of heaven. And God's going to get that box. He's going to rip open that box. And he's going to pull you out. And he's going to go, look, this thing is brand new. Undamaged. Not damaged goods not hurt in shipping, not lost in the warehouse of UPS, but delivered to heaven, pure, blameless, complete, and brand spanking new. And no matter how much you try, you cannot get off that road if Jesus has you. Which means the, the, the best thing, the calling for us is to posture ourselves in such a way to move with God in those ways and not against him. He'll get us there.
but we posture ourselves. It's not performance. It's posture we're being called to. It is not my ability, but it's God's ability. And, and here's how the gospel does it. Jesus is faithful. And he will surely do it. And you're being invited into a, a weird, strange community. By God's grace, I would pray that this morning, supernaturally, the Holy Spirit has said, come in. It's weird on purpose. It's not meant to look like any other place in our culture. It is the only place where this kind of community can exist, and it's Jesus' idea. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks God for this sermon and for this text and this word and how you've closed this book. And we pray, God, give us eyes to see, to, to, to be able to rejoice and pray and and be thankful in every single circumstance, not because that's in me, but because you've given it to me. God, let us love one another like crazy because you have chosen the church, not me. And you've chosen me, which you should have sent me to hell, but you've chosen me and given life to me. So then therefore, I'll be a life-giving spirit, as the word says to someone else. Thank you, God, that you love us like crazy. Thank you, Lord. You make us weird people. I pray that whatever is weird that keeps people away that's of us that we bring, you, we repent of that. We walk away of that. But the things that make us weird because we love Jesus, grow us in those things. We want to be a separate, we want to be a holy, sanctified person and community that's totally set apart that makes Jesus look good. We pray in your name. Amen.